From the onset, medical experts warn that patients with pre-existing conditions are more vulnerable to infection from the COVID-19 coronavirus. Patients who have pre-existing heart disease or risk factors for heart disease are all at higher risk for having a more severe course of infection. And it's also similar for patients with cancer. On today's show, discover how COVID-19 is impacting patients treated in the area of medicine known as cardio-oncology. We'll also learn how recovered patients can make a difference in COVID-19 treatment and research. It's the most promising treatment we have and is definitely a way for a person who has made it through this illness to help those who are actively infected. And later, we'll hear about a project aimed at getting people to mask up to help others. It doesn't really take much effort to wear a mask, so there's really, at this point, no reason not to. Discover more about the COVID-19 coronavirus pandemic inside this edition of CTSI Discovery Radio. Welcome to CTSI Discovery Radio. I'm your host, Brian Belmer. CTSI Discovery Radio is brought to you by the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin. The CTSI is a consortium of researchers, doctors, scientists, and others representing eight institutions, including the Medical College of Wisconsin, Milwaukee School of Engineering, Marquette University, the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, Children's Wisconsin, Freighter's Hospital, Versity Blood Center of Wisconsin, and the Zablocki VA Medical Center. The CTSI works collaboratively across all of our member institutions. Our mission is advancing health through research and discovery. We were told early on in the COVID-19 coronavirus pandemic that among the hardest hit would be those with pre-existing medical conditions. This is turning out to be true as many with pre-existing conditions are experiencing less positive outcomes, including death. Among them are patients suffering from cancer and cardiovascular-related diseases. For a perspective on how COVID-19 is affecting patients and their treatment for both their chronic illness and the coronavirus, we gained insight from Dr. Sherry Ann Brown, Director of Cardio-Oncology and Assistant Professor, Department of Medicine, Division of Cardiology, at the Medical College of Wisconsin. Dr. Brown begins our conversation by first explaining exactly what the field of cardio-oncology is. Cardio-oncology is a relatively new field in medicine and focuses on preventing, diagnosing, monitoring, and managing issues with the heart related to cancer therapy. The term cardio-oncology may lead some to believe that it refers to cancer within the heart. And that is true to a certain extent, but the majority of the field deals with individuals who have cancer currently or who have had cancer at some point in the past and who have developed an issue with the heart or a risk factor for heart disease that's a direct development from having the cancer or having chemotherapy or any sort of therapy for cancer that can potentially affect the cardiovascular system, which is the heart and blood vessels. She gives an example. You might have someone who develops high blood pressure because of a chemotherapy medication or developed a problem with the electricity system in their heart because of having had radiation. So there's a wide variety of ways in which cancer cancer therapies can affect the heart and blood vessels, leading to the development of this relatively new specialty. 
is it common for a patient to suffer from the burden of both cancer and cardiovascular disease? Great question. It's unfortunate that sometimes the things that we do in medicine to help or heal can also in some ways hurt. In oncology, our doctors are developing new therapies and new ways of treating cancer and giving people a longer life. At the same time, we learned that with each new drug, there can be some effects. And while those effects can be significant, but manageable for some patients... Effects from therapies for cancer can be nausea or vomiting and fatigue. For others, the effects of cancer treatment can be far more serious, even devastating because there can also be effects on the heart and the number one killer in the world is heart disease and then once you add cancer and therapies for cancer then that risk is even higher and so that's why we in cardiology can help protect the heart so that the cancer doctors can continue the treatment to make the cancer in remission or under control. So are there unique challenges for patients battling cancer who also have cardiovascular disease? That is indeed the case because the effects of the cancer therapies can be varied. And so generally when folks go to chemotherapy, oftentimes you'll find that focusing on a heart-healthy diet or healthy lifestyle might be challenging when you're dealing with everything else. There are some folks who are able to do that while going through therapy, but for a large amount of people, that's really hard. And because every cardio-oncology patient and their specific challenges are different. There are other things to think about, such as interactions between medications. And so if you're on a heart medication or a cancer medication, making sure that we think about that as we make the prescriptions or we make suggestions or recommendations and realizing that there will always be limitations on both sides. To this point, what's known about COVID-19's effect on patients with pre-existing conditions like cancer and cardiovascular disease? Dr. Brown says medical knowledge on this is evolving, but it's early. Around the country and around the world, a lot of the procedures for a lot of the therapies that might have taken place in cardiology or oncology before the pandemic might have been decreased or limited during the pandemic. There's data currently being put together of a survey among heart and cancer doctors around the world to see what have some of those impacts been and how has our practice changed. And it will be very interesting to see those results come out over the next several months. Ahead of findings from that data, she says there are some recommendations being made by oncologists and cardiologists. We do a lot of testing to monitor for the heart function before, during, after therapy. And so we've come up with recommendations about how to guide those tests. So for patients who may have a smaller number of things that would make us think that they might be at higher risk of having heart trouble from cancer therapy, maybe they don't need as frequent testing during the pandemic in order to decrease their risk of exposure. So that's been part of the change that's been helpful in cardio-oncology. What about recommendations for revising treatments due to COVID-19? In terms of infusion of cancer therapies, I would let the oncology doctors comment more on that. But nevertheless, some of the overall treatment and management plan has needed to be adjusted. The main goal is to limit exposure while still ensuring that we can maximize quantity and quality of life for patients based on their goals. Next, we asked Dr. Brown how much worse outcomes are for patients with pre-existing cancer and cardiovascular disease if they do contract COVID-19. She says it's hard to quantify exactly, but... Patients who have 
disease or risk factors for heart disease are all at higher risk for having a more severe course of infection. And it's also similar for patients with cancer. And then if the patient has both, that's even more challenging for them. And even if a cardio-oncology patient does recover from COVID-19, the long-term effects of this virus are so far unknown. Even without the pandemic, when individuals have complications with their heart or blood vessels from cancer therapy, there can be long-term effects from that. With COVID-19, we're also thinking about that. What are the long-term effects on the heart in folks who've had COVID-19 and don't have? And then even more, in folks who do have pre-existing heart disease or cancer, what are the long-term effects of that? Only additional research and time will tell. We have to learn more about long-term effects on the heart and blood vessels from the cancer therapies and also the long-term effects from COVID-19. It will take some time to determine the answer to some of those questions as we continue to care for our patients in the long run. What we do already know is that while the severity of COVID-19 patients varies, patients with pre-existing cardiovascular disease and cancer are on the severe end of the spectrum. What we're seeing in the hospital suggests that when patients have heart disease at baseline, they tend to be sicker with COVID-19, tend to need to be in the hospital more often. And some need to be in intensive care unit and may need a ventilator. And those who have pre-existing heart disease or cancer tend to be on more of the advanced end of the spectrum. Adding to the risk for cardio-oncology patients are immunosuppressant medications often prescribed in treating their disease. Patients with cancer are frequently on immunosuppressive medications, and the risk of infection can be higher, especially in those with cancer. And then with a higher level of inflammation in those with heart disease, the overall response of the body to the infection is even higher in terms of inflammation throughout the body as a system. And Dr. Brown says there are other significant challenges for cardio-oncology patients in the face of COVID-19. If it seems that they might benefit from an invasive surgery to protect their heart, and if at the same time they've been recently diagnosed with an aggressive cancer and they need to schedule surgery, they might have to decide which one to delay and which one to pursue first. During the pandemic, it's even more challenging because then you have to think about exposure that can happen with any surgery or procedure that needs to be done. As mentioned, it's suspected that there may be long-term effects for cardio-oncology patients. But are there both acute and chronic risks? There is great evidence for acute risk. We don't know as much yet as we'd like to about the chronic effects of COVID-19, but we suspect some evidence that it's not only what happens at the time of the initial infection. Also being researched, how many COVID-19 patients have pre-existing cardio-oncology diseases? There have been papers looking at the prevalence of those who have cardiovascular disease or cancer in the midst of the pandemic. And it's good to be able to have those rates to be able to determine how we use our resources and also being able to determine what the long-term needs will be in our population. Considering there's many forms of cancer and cardiovascular disease, is precision medicine playing a role in treating cardio-oncology patients infected with COVID-19? Dr. Brown says, absolutely. MCD 
AEW has been one of the leaders with assets for studying genomic or genetic variants or studying expression levels, understanding better who may be at risk for having more severe disease and not responding as well to different forms of management. Precision medicine does play a role and that's something that MTW is advancing right now and I'm excited to be a part of that. Precision medicine might also help doctors determine priorities in treating a cardio-oncology patient for COVID-19. If they have severe illness with COVID-19, that may need to take precedence over the other types of management that they may need. And so that itself might cause a delay. And then concerns about exposure might also cause a delay. But I would expect the delay to be more so when they have severe illness and that needs to be taken care of first or whether to interrupt the patient's cardio-oncology-related treatment for COVID-19. There's been a lot of question about whether these drugs might be detrimental in COVID-19. However, there's no clear data that those medications are harmful, and because the medications are beneficial, many have advocated for continuing those medications throughout the pandemic for these patients. And so, Dr. Brown adds, We think about whether precision medicine plays a role there, and so those are all areas under investigation for which we hope to learn more for our patients. There needs to be more research in order to better treat COVID-19, especially in patients with pre-existing conditions. But Dr. Brown says it's well underway, including right here in our community. Here at MTW, just as around the country or the world, we're also working on putting out some scholarship on some of this because we all want to contribute to improving the health and hope and healing of all of our patients. Finally, Dr. Brown has a message to share during this COVID-19 pandemic. We're all experiencing it differently, yet we're all in this together. And so as the pandemic progresses, we can determine how we can best maximize and optimize health, hope, and healing over time for all of us. Up next, we focus our CTSI on the community as we learn about a call to action for anyone who's been infected by the COVID-19 coronavirus. It's called the Convalescent Plasma Donation Program, and it's a volunteer opportunity for recovered patients to assist with COVID-19 treatment and research. Dr. Gilbert White is Executive Vice President for Research at Versity Blood Research Institute and Professor, Department of Medicine, Division of Biochemistry and Pharmacology and Toxicology at the Medical College of Wisconsin. We spoke with him to learn more about the Convalescent Plasma Donation Program. He begins with the basics, namely, what is plasma? Plasma is the liquid part of blood. So you have cells and you have liquid that carry the cells, and plasma is the liquid part. It contains proteins and salts and materials like that. And within that plasma in blood are important proteins. One of the proteins that's present in blood are antibodies that we make to various things. When you obtain plasma from an individual, you obtain those antibodies as well as other proteins and materials. What then is convalescent plasma, which is being sought for this donation program? Convalescent plasma is plasma from an individual who has recovered from an illness. In this case, it's an individual who's recovered from COVID-19. And that's what he and others need for both clinical treatment and research for treating and curing the COVID-19 coronavirus. At the outbreak of the pandemic, 
the U.S. Food and Drug Administration approved convalescent plasma as an emergency investigational new drug, or EIND. The FDA issued the EIND very quickly and very easily because of previous experience with convalescent plasma and other viral illnesses and because of its relative safety and because there really weren't other drugs to treat COVID-19. So it was on the fast track by the FDA and a lot of centers across the country are beginning to use convalescent plasma to treat COVID-19 too. He also shares why convalescent plasma being approved as an EIND is important. There's a lot of evidence that antibodies transferred from an individual who's recovered from an illness can affect the course of another person who has that illness. In Ebola and SARS and other diseases, these antibodies can be effective in recipients, so it makes sense to try this. So does using convalescent plasma work in treating someone with a disease? Dr. White says... We think it has. Obviously, it's hard to do a control experiment with something as devastating as Ebola. Ethically, we didn't believe that it was right to do a randomized controlled clinical trial. You give it, and if the course seems to deviate from what you have been observing, you believe that it works. But there's compelling evidence pointing to success, making it worthwhile to try again. When we say that we believe that it's worked in Ebola and SARS, it's based on clinical experience, not the perfect clinical trial, but in a trial that was convincing to the individuals that did it. And I think ample evidence that we should go forward with this in COVID-19. To this point, has convalescent plasma been used in COVID-19 patients as a treatment? And if so... Has it been effective? Yeah, it has been used in an increasing number of patients with active COVID-19. Everyone who's using it thinks that they are seeing some effect from it, but the numbers are still small, and to be sure that it's having some effect is going to take further observation. Dr. Mary Beth Graham is Associate Chief and Professor, Department of Medicine, Division of Infectious Disease at the Medical College of Wisconsin and co-principal investigator of the Convalescent Plasma Program. Here we have given it to around 30 patients, and I've seen differences in patients who were treated later in the course of their disease versus those who were treated earlier on. If somebody is further out from their disease, it really isn't going to change the course of their illness or cause much improvement. However, in some cases, when given to a COVID-19 patient early Early on in their diagnosis. We've had a few people who had dramatic turnarounds with it, and in the media, there are people, not from our institution, but from elsewhere, who have got plasma, then within 48 hours, they were out of the hospital. So there's a lot of hope for this. Within the population of patients infected with COVID-19, who specifically is convalescent plasma intended for? Dr. Gilbert White. That's an important question. There are two general populations that benefit most from it. One is patients who are seriously ill. So the sicker you are, the more you will need convalescent plasma as a possible treatment. And if it continues to prove effective, a second population intended to benefit from convalescent plasma. People on the front line might benefit from getting convalescent plasma to prevent COVID-19. This convalescent plasma only works for a short period of time and then it would have to be given again. But if it does work as we hope it will, 
convalescent plasma might be keeping them from getting the infection. How long is this donated plasma considered usable? The proteins in plasma have a finite lifespan in a person, whether it's transfused into somebody else or whether it's in you or me. So it only protects for a period of time, a month, maybe a month and a half. Whereas when you get vaccinated, that antibody may last your lifetime. So if someone who had COVID-19 donates convalescent plasma, does it help a single patient or multiple patients? Plasma can benefit multiple patients. Usually a unit of plasma is maybe 500 milliliters and a normal-sized person we would give 200. So it might go to two or possibly three individuals. Conversely, does a patient with confirmed COVID-19 require multiple infusions of convalescent plasma? Dr. White says it likely depends on the antibody titer or test that detects the presence and amount of antibodies within the donated plasma. We all believe the titer of the antibody is going to be important. So an individual who has really high titer antibodies, their plasma might be more effective than somebody that has really low titer antibodies. We're also doing studies to try and understand what are the titers, do the titers make a difference, could daily administration be more effective than a single administration, those sort of things. Dr. Graham agrees that in addition to using it clinically, donated convalescent plasma is helping researchers answer important questions about COVID-19. I do think a number of the researchers over at Varsity are looking at a lot of the different aspects in terms of what actually is the specificity of the antibody. I mean, is it the spike protein for coronavirus that we want the antibody against? Is there some other target? So there's a lot of research being done and will be done to figure out that best approach to what they can develop potentially is a therapeutic down the line. I think we don't know yet what we don't know, but as we learn more about COVID-19 and this particular virus, yes, I do think these plasmas will help us understand the disease better. Versity was among the very first blood centers in the U.S. to begin collecting convalescent plasma at the outbreak of COVID-19. But Dr. White says this is truly a collaborative effort. Environment of discovery that we all want as a research institute. That's what we do. That's what we value. Trying to understand how things happen and why things happen. And that is true throughout Versity and the medical college. It's true in our area hospitals as well. And that drives studies like this forward. Dr. Graham adds this collaborative team science approach between research and clinical practice is undeniably important in fighting COVID-19 and in general. I'm a former bench researcher turned totally clinician for the last 20 plus years. Bench research and our colleagues doing research are absolutely integral to what I do now and in the future. A lot of things we do, we can't do without our partners on the other sides. Another critical partner is the Advancing a Healthier Wisconsin Foundation, which provided funding for the program. The funding was done very quickly and the speed with which AHW responded saved lives. So I am grateful to AHW for the funding that they provided to help individuals deal with COVID-19. If someone wants to donate their convalescent plasma, what are criteria for participation? They need to be recovered from COVID-19 at least 14 days out from their last 
symptom, and they need to have a documented infection, which means they either had to have a nasal swab or they need to have a sample after recovery that shows that they have developed antibodies to COVID-19. Does blood type matter, or can anyone with the antibodies donate their plasma? They can, and we need all blood types because plasma does have antibodies to red blood cells in it, just as it has antibodies to the virus that causes COVID-19. So blood type is important. Where can someone learn more or sign up to donate? We have a hotline that they can call and our website that they can go through, and we will contact them and set up an appointment for them to come in. We'll post links on our CTSI website along with the podcast of this show. For anyone who has recovered from COVID-19, this is your opportunity to make a difference. I can't say this loud enough. There is no magic bullet for treatment of this virus, but by you donating plasma, we have an option to treat somebody in this multidisciplinary fashion. And plasma is a key part of the treatment algorithm that we have to offer patients right now. And perhaps an opportunity to be a hero. We consider all donors to be heroes. We certainly consider those who have recovered from COVID-19 and donate plasma to be heroes. Keeping our CTSI on the community, we learn about a project to promote and provide the wearing of masks when going out into public spaces during the pandemic. Dr. Christopher Davis is an assistant professor, Department of Surgery, Division of Trauma and Critical Care at the Medical College of Wisconsin, who tells us that the Mask Up MKE project got underway when a local company called Rebel Converting, who typically makes surface wipes, had come up with a way to convert their wipes into face masks. These wipes are made out of the same material that surgical masks are made out of in the hospital. The company offered to donate their product. The original donation was going to be a million, and now Rebel Converting has upped the ante, and their donation number is 3.5 million. And those donated wipes have been converted into simple yet effective masks. The majority of the masks that have been made are handmade by volunteers, and rubber bands are what hold the mask into place. Dr. Davis says initially the idea was masks might be needed to fill possible shortages in hospitals. However, it seemed like the hospital systems had enough masks and PPE. And so the bottom line now is that Mask Up MKE turned into this community engagement project, very focused on the underserved because we knew those were going to be the population's most hit. To date, Mask Up MKE has served over 500 local social service agencies, local health care clinics, free clinics, food pantries, Milwaukee public schools because they're giving out meals, any of the high-risk areas and groups and zip codes that we can get product out to. We've done it these last two months. Getting masks to individuals has been more challenging. Still, we have done that through any sort of media that we can utilize, public service announcements, news, but even as basic as handouts that go with the masks, basic information about why and how to use a face mask. He says making and distributing the masks could only happen through collaboration. The collaboration is essential because when you're talking about volunteers making 3.5 million masks, that is a lot of masks to make and a lot of people. There's probably serendipity at play, but there's just a lot of people also that wanted to make the difference that it has been able to. And through collaboration, they've made great strides. 
and millions of masks. The best way that we found to get the volunteers that we needed was to formulate partnerships with some of the major philanthropic agencies in Milwaukee. The Medical College of Wisconsin, especially the Kurt Institute, we provide the medical and public health oversight for the project, and Just One More Ministry has done a tremendous amount to get the masks made. To learn more about Mask Up MKE's collaborating partners and discover lots of key resources, we do have a hashtag, so it's hashtag MaskUpMKE. We also have a website that gives you all the information that you need, and that's maskupmke.org. And on there, you can find out how to either volunteer to make masks or to request masks. If you already are or are willing to wear a mask in public, Mask Up MKE appreciates and needs your support. Wearing a mask when out in public is an adjunct to stopping the spread and saving lives. This is just what you do. And for those not yet on board... Dr. Davis encourages you to mask up to help others. Look within your soul and realize that it's your social responsibility to take care of one another. It doesn't really take much effort to wear a mask, so there's really, at this point, no reason not to. That's all the time we have for this edition of CTSI Discovery Radio. Our sincere thanks to all of today's guests, Dr. Sherry Ann Brown, Dr. Gilbert White, Dr. Mary Beth Graham, and Dr. Christopher Davis. I hope you've discovered something by listening to today's show, and I'm doubly hopeful that you'll join us again next time. CTSI Discovery Radio airs the third Friday of every month, so make an appointment on your calendar and join us for each episode. On behalf of the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin and all of our affiliate partners and members, I'm Brian Belmer, wishing you happier, healthier days ahead. For more information about research or to listen to the podcast of this or any of our shows online and on demand, please visit our website at ctsi.mcw.edu. CTSI Discovery Radio is written, produced, and hosted by Brian Belmer in collaboration with WMSE Radio. The CTSI and this program are under the direction of Dr. Reza Shakir.